Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. My guest today is a New York-based lifelong athlete and award-winning journalist who writes about sports, science, and health. Their interest in the intersection between sports science and women athletes led them to their first book, Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes, which disentangles myth and gender bias from real science in order to address the huge research gap in supporting women athletes to excel at every stage of life. Ultimately, this is a book that is not just a roadmap for women and girls, but an examination of the systemic injustices in sports and science that affect all people in the hope of uncovering ways to make the system more equitable for everyone. It's my delight to now invite them to introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing and welcome them to Running on Joy. Hello. Hi. Yeah, my name is Christine Yu. I'm so excited to be here. And I mean your introduction I think covered all the bases I might have to steal that that introduction from you so that I can use because I think that was the best kind of distillation of me and the book and that I've heard in a while we'll be co-writers in it I think (laughs) so people who aren't necessarily familiar with your work particularly in the UK or or maybe don't even operate Mm -hmm. in the field of competitive athletics might perceive that running is this pretty equal space that's just a case of lacing up, putting your shoes on and and getting out there. So just to kick us off, um, before we delve deeper into these things and into your personal history, could you just give a brief outline as to why historically and today that equity and simplicity isn't necessarily the case? That's a great question. Um, Yeah, it does. Running does, I think, on the surface seem really easy, right? We always say you can just, all you need for running is just a pair of shoes, right? You can just lace up a pair of shoes and head out the door and you can run anywhere, anyhow. Um, But I think that that misses a lot of the different layers of what it actually means to be able to even get out the door in the first place. Um, And so running in general, as a sport, as a competitive sport, has very largely been uh, a space that's been dominated by white men, frankly. Um, You know, those are the, when kind of recreational running and the competitive running boom kind of went out, that that's the people who are running. And for a very long time, you know, women haven't really been allowed to lace up, to, you know, 
get to the racing starting line, um, even just running around your neighborhood, you were kind of looked at funny because people thought that running was really bad for a woman's body, right? It could harm the reproductive system. So that's, that's one layer of it, right? Like your gender and your ability to, um, what that sport could potentially do to your body and what that says about your role in society and in culture, right? Women equals childbearing and, and, you know, having kids and, and being the, you know, that, that homemaker. The other layers are that, you know, there's a lot of safety layers in terms of depending on the color of your skin, um, you know, what that represents to people when they see someone who might be, you know, black or black or brown out in the streets running. Um, there's, you know, I know for myself, safety layers that, especially when the pandemic first started heading out on the streets and, and running and, you know, there was a, all the anti-Asian hate, um, and a lot of violence at that point in time. Um, and, you know, and as women in general, right. Feeling that we are in this public space and yet our bodies are somehow, um, available for public consumption, if you will. Um, so, yeah, it's it's. I think there's a lot of intricate layers, and I think that that is something that the running industry and the running world has really been trying to reckon with over the last several years. It and at least understanding and recognizing the intersections of these different identities of these different um, layers that we have as human beings. We're not just one thing. Thank you so much. That was such a beautifully nuanced response, and I think it kind of highlights that fact that. We do have such short term memory as well in t- terms of, sort of like discrimination and prejudice that people meet. So like we sort of got past kind of first wave feminism of that sort of like mm-hmm. body as battleground thing. But the reality is that it because of sort of like the the kind of explosion of sort of identity politics and um, and racial politics as well, um, you know, in very recent history and currently, that's just kind of made everything so much more complex in a way, hasn't it? It's it's really Absolutely. not a case of just getting past that women's rights and and that's it because still we have so many taboos as well with women's health and things that just make it really difficult to to talk about actually the injustices that are there in a way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And from your, because you opened the book with a lot of your historical research. And I was interested if there's anything particularly that struck you or that you learned from during that research process. Um, I think on the one hand, I wasn't necessarily surprised in the sense that like, I kind of knew what some of the historical research would say about sports and women's participation in sports. And like, you know, like I kind of alluded to this fact that uh, sports has always been this arena for men and women haven't always been welcome in that arena. Um, so I kind of knew that going in. I think what really surprised me is how prevalent those beliefs are and have continued to be into present day. You know, I think there's a part of me that expected, oh, that was decades ago. That was in the past. Um, whereas it's not really true. A lot of this misogyny, a lot of this, you know, these these beliefs about women's bodies being fragile or not made for sports continue to persist. And I think like for me, the biggest example was that women weren't allowed to participate in the big hill ski jump, right? In, um, at the at the Winter Olympics until 2014 um, because 
their, you know, the, the then head of, I think he's then head of the international ski federation or, you know, whoever's in charge of this, like, like actually said that it wouldn't be good for women's bodies. Like the landing on impact would essentially cause the uterus to burst, which Again, we're in the 2010s and <laughs> this is not so long ago. And yet we still have these prevalent myths about women's bodies um, that are just taken for fact and not critically examined. And so that was a big kind of thing that was surprising to me. The other piece of it was that while on the whole, those ideas about women's bodies and what we can and can't do haven't been examined. There have been a handful of women doctors and scientists and others who have been researching this, right. And who have been trying to look and say like, wait, I don't, I I don't think that those ideas are right. I feel like, you know, maybe, you know, to dismiss a whole like half of the human population as being in um, not suitable for sport or, you know, physical activity or vigorous activity is kind of misleading. Um, but the fact is that a lot of the, that research wasn't necessarily taken seriously because it was conducted by women. And so again, the men in charge, because it was often men in charge would look at this research and say, I don't think that you're a reliable source. I feel like you might, you know, it's like the sense that like you're too close to the subject to examine this, um, you know, neutrally, right? Um, To examine this critically, to not be biased. Whereas, you know, it's kind of like the pot calling the kettle black, right? Like there's so much bias already infiltrating the system that they're so blind to. Um, So those were kind of two just like big picture things that I think surprised me. It's amazing that it's okay for women's bodies to go through this enormous stress and work of pregnancy, but for that assumption to be that that same body can't do anything else. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can't it's jump. <laughs> you can't jump. That's that's too much work, but fine, carry a huge baby in there. Yeah, and, and, and multiple babies, right? <laughs> and like lots of babies. Um, it's It's really wild to me. <laughs> Before we um, just go a little bit more down that track, can we um, just flip to talk a little bit more Mm -hmm. about your personal narrative? First of all, kind of what your relationship was with both movement and then starting to also write about sports and health. Sure. So um, I I grew up in uh, in on the East Coast of the United States um, and, you know, grew up playing sports or started playing sports around uh fourth grade here so what is that like I don't even know how old that is um but you know started playing sports in school in part because I had to play sports in school is kind of a requirement um and you know apart from that like I swam growing up we had a pool in the backyard you know my family would go skiing and so like some sort of movement has always been part of my life um and for me, I, you know, I will flat out say like up front that like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a great athlete. Like, you know, it's something that I enjoy and like, I'm a decent athlete. Um, but for me, it was more about like being with my friends, um, kind of that social aspect of it, the, 
you know, as cheesy and cliche as it sounds, like the lessons that you learn about teamwork and leadership and like all this other stuff. Um, but it, but it was also just like, I liked doing those things. I liked playing. Um, and so I kind of grew up doing that. Um, and, you know, have just remained active throughout my life and, you know, become more, took up more long distance running or, and running just in general, kind of towards the end of high school and, and into college and after college. Um, but again, like running for me, you know, I think for a lot of women starts off as like fitness and exercise and trying to like tame your body in a certain way and has become more of frankly, a practice in a way, like I, it's what I need to do to feel good in my body and in my head. Um, and so that it's just a part of my, my life and my identity in terms of writing about sports and all of this. Um, I journalism is kind of a second career for me. I used to work in the nonprofit sector, uh, for a long time and then kind of really missed a, like the creative aspect in in my nonprofit work, I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of storytelling, um, but I missed um, kind of telling, I guess, more personal stories too. And writing, frankly, writing about things that I was interested in. Um, so I made the, so I kind of made the shift into journalism. And when I did that, you know, it's like they always tell you to write what you know. And so for me, that is that was like running and fitness and exercise. Like those were the things that I wanted to explore more. So I start, you know, started off doing a lot of like women's fitness magazine type articles and have slowly kind of shifted from there to look more specifically at the sports science aspect and, and um, how that specifically affects women athletes and performance and injury prevention and training and, and all of that. Mm. How do you, I actually just had a question in mind that's um, a slight tangent from that. How do you feel about, so on Runners World, kind of they've started having the, the women's running section. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that being sort of cornered off under women's problems? Like here, here are some bras and things rather than that being something that everybody should know about. I mean, it's great that there's the content on there, but it does feel slightly like we're still going to put that in a little corner (laughs) we'll put the pants and the bras there and then we'll talk about the men over here (laughs) yeah I mean I'm I'm conflicted a little bit right because like you said on the one hand we need more of that content you know coverage of women in sports and women in general is tends to be less right compared to men or much less and so we definitely need that those types of stories to be out there um but I agree, like I'm 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 somewhat conflicted because on the one hand, there's they're just stories, right? Like I read stories about male athletes all the time. Um, and don't necessarily bat an eye about it per se. I'm like, oh, I'm not gonna read that just because this has to deal with like a guy or something like that. There's there's always like an interesting story there or something I can learn from there. So like why can't we treat women athletes in the same way? Um, but on the other hand too, I also know that for some women, because we've been so marginalized and othered, um, in media for so long and in society, frankly, in general, that sometimes you do need this almost safe space, um, or like not, uh, not necessarily safe space, but just like dedicated carved out space, um, that is specifically for women so that you can feel more comfortable 
that, you know, I know some, some people might just feel more comfortable going to like a women's running, um, because they can identify more with it and feel like, you know, this is, this is going to speak to me versus like going to just a general runner's world and being like, well, I don't know if this speaks to me or not. Yeah. Having that sign posted, like this is, this is your space. You're welcome here kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point, I think. And actually that sort of ties in with um, where I wanted to go next in terms of you coming to be aware of a kind of the, the internal dialogue of of blaming yourself when you had your first um ACL tear and uh, I know that you've spoken and written about this um quite a bit but I was wondering if you could just talk through the feelings that you had when that happened and how and whether that then informed kind of your interests specifically in sort of female athlete health yeah I think my journey with knee injuries has been interesting um so I actually, the first time I tore my ACL, um, I was in college and I was skiing. Um, and I actually, that felt like very much like a fluke accident, right? I just had a bad fall. I, you know, it's kind of yard sale down part of the, the, the slopes. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I tore my ACL. It was like one of, and I knew that, at that point, what I was like 21. Um, and I had definitely heard this idea that, oh, women get more knee injuries than men, but I didn't really, I don't think that that really impacted me so much at that point. Um, but fast forward 15 years, um, and I was training for a half marathon. It was like the right at the beginning of my training cycles, like the first speed workout I was going to do. I had, I had had two kids at that point. So, and I was like getting back into running. Um, and I was at the track and I was doing four hundreds. Um, and on my last one, I came, you know, came around to the back stretch and like immediately felt something pop in my right knee, um, and couldn't put any weight on it. And it was just, I mean, who, tears their ACL running. Like that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't happen. You know, like you tear your ACL skiing, you tear your ACL playing basketball or soccer when you like, you know, land funny or something like that. You don't tear it when you're just running. Um, so I, you know, that, I think that injury in particular for me was really difficult because I was very frustrated. I felt like I had been doing everything right. I was coming back to running, you know, in a gradual way. I had been doing a lot of strength training up until that point, you know, yoga, like all the things I thought that I should be doing. It never crossed my mind that I would re-tear my ACL, frankly. I know that there are a lot of statistics that say, you know, if you tear it once, you're more likely to tear it again. But this is this has been 15 years since my first injury. And frankly, you know, since then, like I had run multiple marathons, I'd run multiple half marathons, I'd done, you know, an Olympic distance triathlon, I, you know, have hiked like all these things, like I'd been much more active since my first ACL tear. Um, So it never really crossed my mind that uh, something like this would happen. But so it made me feel like there was something wrong with me. Um, and I think that that was the piece that had always been pervasive. Um, this idea that my body is somehow injury prone. Um, so while, you know, I'm, 
it might not have crossed my mind that I would re-tear my ACL. Yeah, I had dealt with some knee pain. I had dealt with some IT band issues and stuff like that. Always seemed like there was something a little niggly and wrong. Um, and that was hard because you're like, you're doing all the stuff you you feel like you should be doing. You're doing all the stuff that the people tell you you should do. You're doing the stuff that like your physical therapist tells you you should do. And yet still this happens. Um, and I think that that, again, that, that that was just a pervasive sense that I had had um, for myself. And then I think as I started reporting more on sports and sports science and health and talking to different athletes of all levels, um, this the same kind of niggling sense of like, not quite something not quite right, or like, um, you, this idea that like, your your body is like, not quite right for sports or this sport that you're doing um, always seemed to crop up a little bit. And so, you know, when I started going, thinking about writing this book, I knew that that was a piece of it that I kind of wanted to interrogate a little bit more to understand like, well, why, why do a lot of women feel like, you know, there's a lot of unspoken things, right. That, you know, that we kind of push aside or like push down or just deal with because we have to deal with, um, why does it always feel like you're just trying to fit this, like force fit this puzzle piece into the puzzle just to finish the puzzle, if you, if that makes sense. And do you think it's that, that women talking about these things that sort of meant that, I mean, your book came out or has come out at a similar time to things like Laura Fleshman's Good for a Girl and Cara Gucci's like The Longest Race and things like that. And it seems like women's health is sort of having having a bit of a moment, really. And do you think that is is symptomatic of those kind of bubbling conversations and feelings that have been happening? And now suddenly it's it's all coming out. Yeah, I think it's a combination of a bunch of different things. I think on the one hand, it's the recognition or the greater recognition amongst folks that, you know, there is this big gender data gap in sports science research, or I mean, frankly, in biomedical research in general. Um, but when we think about sports science research, there is there is a huge data gap. We understudy women. So I think that there is this inherent kind of like pulling back the veil to reveal like, oh, wait, maybe some of this data and our understanding of how things work um, excludes women's lived experience and perspective. And I think like people realizing that and understanding that a little bit more starts to bubble up those questions, right? So I think that that's one piece. I think the other piece is like more people starting to talk about these issues. I mean, because there are a lot of issues that are, you know, quote unquote taboo, um, you know, menstrual cycles being like a big one of those. And we haven't always talked about it or we're like, we kind of talk about it in, in hush corners. Right. But I think that there's been um, just kind of a momentum building around talking about the issues that women face in sports and athletics um, related to, you know, to menstrual cycle dysfunction, related to bone stress injuries, related to eating disorders, that it feels like it has taken a couple of big name athletes to kind of be more honest and to, to be and to start to share their stories that has almost created a permission for other people to recognize and say, wait a second, I did, I went through that too. That was my experience. And to feel like that it they aren't 
that folks aren't alone in this, that um, they aren't just an exception to the rule, that it wasn't just them. And I think like starting to piece those pieces together and piece those stories together, you know, again, it, it creates this momentum where it's like, wait, there's a bigger thing going on here. And for me, like I, I would point to um, when Mary Kane did her um, video op-ed for the New York Times. So this was back in November of 2019. Um, Mary Kane being a former professional runner, she's a middle distance runner, you know, in, in the United States, she was touted as like the next great best like American runner, right? Like she was going to save American women's running. Um, and, you know, at 17, she is recruited to go run for Nike, for Alberto Salazar. Um, but then, I mean, her body basically breaks down because A, she is 17, she's an adolescent and she's being, you know, asked to do these, you know, training and kind of like um, train her body in a way that wasn't necessarily taking into account all the developmental things that she was going through at that age, right? Um, so, you know, she suffered multiple bone stress uh, fractures, eating disorder, um, lost her period for, you know, several years, um, experienced suicidal ideation and, you know, and was hurting herself, like all of these things. And she spoke out about it. And I think that for me, I can point to as a moment in which like it, like things finally lit. It's like that flame finally caught fire and it really changed the nature of the conversation around women in sports and athletics, what that means. Um, how are we supporting girls and women in sport? How are we not supporting them? Right? Like, why are we letting this happen to girls over and over and over again? Mm, and that's also opened a space because I mean, history and also present times has not been kind to people along the gender spectrum too. And yeah. I know that, that your book is very much about equity and inclusion for all people. Um, and I just wonder if you could just discuss before we kind of move on, just how you use language and how you approach this in the book. Sure. Um, it was hard. It was something I really wanted to be mindful of because both science and sports are two fields that are very much predicated on the gender binary, right? And that being very separate and distinct things, male, female, um, and those categories, you know, the two shall not intersect or, you know, come in contact with each other at all. They are, you are in two separate buckets. But I think as we have, you know, have we been learning and, you know, understanding better that gender, not only is gender, you know, something that exists on a spectrum, but frankly, sex also exists on a spectrum. It's not just male over here, female over here. Um, and so I wanted to, I wanted to be able to be more specific when I was talking about things as to what I was referring to. So um, when I when I use the terms male and female, I'm typically using that only in terms of like physiology, biology, anatomy, like, you know, um, those specific attributes. I'm not using that generally to refer to anyone's identity um, or any one person, right? Um, and so 
for people's identity, obviously I defer to their preference and how they prefer to be um, identified as, but then also it's recognizing that, you know, say take menstruation, right? Not everybody who menstruates is going to identify as a woman, even though we might say like um, that as our shorthand saying like women menstruate or just assume that, you know, menstruation only happens with women, but not all folks who menstruate, who have the, the, the female physiology and reproductive system are going to identify with that gender identity. Um, so I try to use language like people who menstruate, people with breasts, um, pregnant people, again, to allow for that kind of greater range <laughs> and inclusion of folks who might fall within that, who might have those biological, physiological attributes um, but be respective of the fact that their gen that their identities in and of themselves might not align with what is has been, you know, quote unquote, no, you know, normal or what we're used to per se. Mm, and like we were discussing, signposting that this is a space that includes all of you, yeah. and this is a book about about bodies and how we best represent and make space for those bodies, no matter how you identify in terms of your gender or sex identity, really. Yeah. Um, and I know that we we talked a bit about that why um, female research has not been, or, or research by women has not been respected necessary, and also the harrowing repercussions of when women in sport are not treated um, in the correct manner. Um, and I'm interested too in why research programs also have problems in terms of recruitment for and for, for female volunteers and why uptake for research programs is perhaps so low too, because that's kind of part of the puzzle as well, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely, if you want more research on women, you need <laughs> participants who identify as such. Um, and I think that this is, it's an interesting area. And I don't, at least when I was looking into this for the book, there wasn't a lot of concrete evidence. There's a lot of kind of anecdotal evidence that I heard from different uh, scientists and researchers that I spoke with. Um, so one thing, you know, that they pointed to is, is something called volunteer bias, right? Who are the people who are going to be more likely to raise their hand and say, hey, I'll do this. I'll volunteer for this, this study in which I might have to do really hard physical activity. I might have to get my blood drawn and like come back and to your, to your lab multiple times and all of this stuff. And so that those parameters of that study in and of itself might exclude people because of scheduling, because of you know, if women are more likely to have childcare or elder care responsibilities or other household responsibilities, they might not have as flexible of a schedule to be able to go in to a lab and do these things. Um, it might be, you know, another scientist talked to me and said, you also have to look at, you know, who is actually in these departments, right? That are studying kinesiology, that are studying sports science or exercise physiology or nutrition or whatever, um, in a lot of spaces, those departments are still predominantly men or have a lot of men. And oftentimes when you're doing a study, you're also frankly just recruiting from other labs around you, maybe because um, you're putting up signs or if you're short a couple of people, you might just go next door and be like, hey, can someone, 
can one of you do this? And that just might, you know, in and of itself, like, again, unconsciously, you're pulling in, um, you may be potentially pulling in more men as participants versus women, just by nature, the way that the that the study is done, or I mean, that the departments are, are um, the demographics of the department, sorry. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting because there are all there are all these other outside factors, right, that can influence who actually shows up at the lab um, to be able to participate in this. That sounds really multi-layered and complex. How do you think it can be addressed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's in part on the researchers to be conscious of it, right? To be conscious of who it is that they are recruiting and what that breakdown is starting to look like. Um, I think it is also being conscious of, you know, the and understanding the barriers which might keep the participant population that you are looking for from participating, right? So if it is things like schedule, if it is things like financial or transportation or what have you, like what are different ways that you can smooth out um, those points of friction, right? So that it makes it easier for a, a wider range of folks to be able to participate. Um, but yeah, but I think it, you know, it is largely being even just aware that this is happening. So I think that's a good point also to start thinking in a little bit more depth about things that have been silenced in the past, or let's have a look at the taboos. <laughs> so I mean, a lot of kind of the, from from my understanding, sort of a lot of the kind of silence around um, research into, into female athletes is kind of dovetailing with how we talk about things like female pleasure and that that's always sort of been very male centric and how we conduct sort of sex, sex education. Um, and that's also kind of mimetic in the taboo around things like pre and post menopausal years. So maybe let's kick off with that taboo. <laughs> and why do you think that that vital stage of women's lives seems to have been left out of the equation? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's in, I, I think it's in part because, you know, there's a, there's a pretty, there's a general assumption that, and which holds true in, in a lot of ways, right? Like we're all humans, right? Men, women, you know, whoever, we're all humans. And so we, we do share a lot of commonalities in our systems and in our bodies. Um, and so on just the surface, when you look at men versus women, it seems like, oh yeah, we're all the same except for the reproductive systems, right? And so if we just study men, like that's fine. And we can just kind of make kind of generalize to how that would apply to women. And that's in part, right, behind some of the some of the reasons why women have been left out from research. And so if you if you distill women's essence down to just, well, the only difference is women's reproductive system. Right. And then you go back to this idea that we touched on in the beginning that women's cultural value in society is our our ability to procreate, right? Our ability to bear children and care in and to bear children. Um it's it seems like that's where our worth comes from, right? Um, and so when women are no longer fertile, right? Which essentially is what happens in the 
menopause transition as like, it's the bookend to puberty as your hormones start to kind of decline and, um, you're not quote, quote unquote fertile anymore. It seems like, well, why bother (laughs) studying them in a way, right? Like our value to society in a way is, is decreased because, you know, we're on the other side of things. Like, so, so why bother with us? But I think, um, I guess there are, so that's kind of general, like a a pretty big general statement, but I think in terms of like research on menopause in particular, um, it's not that there hasn't been research on menopause. The research that has existed has largely been um, looking at things like bone health. So like osteoporosis, um, cardiovascular health, because cardiovascular disease goes up you know, in the, in postmenopausal state. Um, so it's looking at these big picture public health issues, right? These, these issues that affect a large number of people. Um, and so historically there hasn't been a lot of like older women who have been interested in remaining physically active and performance driven. Um, I, you know, at least from my perception, it doesn't seem like that has really, there hasn't been this like uh, critical mass until more recently, right? Um, It's not, it's not that there weren't women who were doing that, but you know, it wasn't, it didn't seem like there was a lot of them because again, we've been told like, oh, it's time to slow down a little bit. Like, you know, maybe don't compete anymore. You know, it's like, you gotta be careful and like all of these things. And so there really wasn't like that, again, that like interest in looking at um, at these bigger topics around performance and training and how what that means and injury and what that means in this older population, um, and frankly, that population even today is still a pretty small percentage of the overall population of older women, right? So when you think about allocation of resources and when like government agencies or you know other funding organizations are going to put money towards research, they're probably not going to put money towards this like research that's only going to affect a small percentage of the population. They're going to put money in those like big ticket items around bone health and heart disease and, you know, metabolic disease and all of those things that affect mortality more significantly than saying, how should I train? How can I maintain my, you know, like those types of things. How can I maintain my muscle mass as an already active person? Because again, that's, that's a small percentage of the population. But again, as you said, it's about, it's not that women can't, it's that they think they can't because of messaging that they've been given. And who knows if they carried on exercising past the menopause, like actually the knock-on effect on other health problems that maybe crop up later in life that that could be massive <laughs> so yeah it's not a question of just just assigning resources to something that's that's small it could be huge really yeah well and i mean and frankly it it kind of makes sense though too why physical activity falls out in this stage of life because you're probably you know you may often be dealing with still with like childcare um stresses and demands your family Um, you're also likely dealing with like aging parents, um, career wise, there's probably a lot of, 
you know, if you are working, there's probably a lot of um, stress around that too, at, at this point in your career. I mean, I just look at myself and, you know, I'm in my late forties now. And like I said, moving my body has always been an integral part of my life and who I am. And even for me, it has been really hard, like to maintain that same sort of enthusiasm and motivation to work out. Um, and on top of that, like my body's changing, right? So like physiologically, my body is changing. So it's not responding in the same way that I'm used to. So I get, you know, it's easier to get discouraged. It's easier to be like, well, what's the point of doing this? I'm just going to like take it slow or easy, or I'm just going to like, whatever, um, not, not work out. Um, and so it's easy to see how these things can happen, right? As we age. And then there's the snowball effect of that, that kind of, well, if I'm going to be past it in a few years anyway, what's the point in carrying on now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, in terms of something that is becoming less taboo, um, we said at the, at the beginning about kind of discussions around periods. And I mean, there's been a lot of sort of breakthroughs in terms of training around menstrual health and just kind of general awareness, really. Um, Where are we at in terms of that research Um, and also the support and education that's available? Yeah, it's been really phenomenal to see the amount of research that has come out in recent years and that continues to come out. And like you said, this attention on menstrual health and, and, and frankly, our understanding that it really is an integral part of our overall health. Um, Because even, yeah, like 10 years ago, that wasn't a thing. Like even, you know, like I, I know it was like, actually like literally about 10 years ago that, you know, I, I kind of had my aha moment and realized, oh, wait, what do you mean? Like my, my cycle isn't just about my fertility. It's actually about like my overall health. And like, that was like mind blowing to me that, you know, A, I was, what, at that point, like my mid to late 30s and figuring it out then. And that made me really mad, right? Um, so I think like it's it's been really exciting to see where um, this attention on the research, this attention to how reproductive hormones affect exercise and performance and injury and all of these different things and the potential to learn, right? Um, so much more about like the impact of all of these different areas. I think where we are is we still have a long way to go um, in that (laughs) if you look at the media headlines, it might seem like there's, you know, a specific blueprint as to how you should train based on your menstrual cycle. But I don't think that, or at least from those that I've spoken with, Um, we're, I think, I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of like having like concrete guidelines. I think there are definitely areas where we have a lot of really good information, a lot of information that seems to hold true, right? That there are multiple studies that, that seem to confirm this, but there's also a lot of areas where there's still a lot of noise that we're still trying to figure out. So for me, like, for me, the bigger point is that people are just paying attention to their menstrual cycles and well, people are aware of them and people are paying attention to them. Right. And they're paying attention to them as something that's an integrated part of their body and their, and their health systems, um, that it is part of their physiology. 
And, and so that's like the biggest thing I want people to just kind of take away and understand, right? Is that like, these are all parts of our bodies, right? Menstrual cycle, breasts, you know, pelvic floor, all of these things are are part of our bodies and don't only have to do with reproductive reproduction, right? They have so many other implications on, on, you know, quality of life, health, a variety of different things, but they're, but like, instead of just being embarrassed by them, not talking about them, thinking we shouldn't talk about them because, you know, if they have to do with reproduction, they have to do with sex. And that's not, you know, that's not polite talk. Um, but in, but instead of just kind of like shoving them off into this corner, but really like reclaiming them, be like, yeah, this is part of my body. This is something I need to know. This is something I need to understand and and know how, yeah, how my hormones might affect me or how, you know, I can find, you know, supportive garments that's that are going to support my breasts in a way that's comfortable. Um, or you know, this, you know, understanding that the pelvic floor really is like an integral part of your core system and your inner stability system. And it's not just about like, you know, not peeing yourself. Right. Um, so it's, it's, again, it's, it's kind of like reclaiming like the more like holistic understanding of these systems and how it works with your body as a whole, because if you're interested in, you know, just take sports, right? If you're interested in performance, you need to understand that, right? Like you need to understand how all of these different things work together. Um, and if you, and frankly, if you just want to be healthy too, right? You need to understand how all of these things work together and not keep everything siloed off. Yeah. I'm 33 and I've just discovered my pelvic floor for pretty much like <laughs> the first time in, in a big way. And a bit like you saying, like discovering kind of cycle tracking and things in your late thirties, it's a case of, this has made me really angry. Like, why did nobody tell me this? <laughs> well, and I think that that's really where we need to go with a lot of this, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Is this is information that girls need at a younger age, like that you should know how your body functions and like what the purpose is of different things. Again, I think we we learn about periods and all of that only in relation to fertility and only in relation to sex, right? And that's doing such a disservice because again, it's like, we don't talk about sex. We don't talk about sex with like, you know, with, um, we don't want little girls to be talking about sex and all of that. So we just don't, so we'll just not talk about it, right? But like really just an overall education about like menstrual health and how it is linked to all of these different things, especially at that age, <clears throat> how it's linked to bone health in particular, it's so critical. Like I think about it when I said like I was so mad, it's in part because understanding that, wow, I had no idea that you lay down, what is it, like 80% of your adult bone mass by the time that you're like 18 as a girl, right? And once you once you kind of get beyond like your early twenties, like you can't add more, you're just trying to keep what you have. And so wouldn't that be really helpful information to know as a younger person to be like, oh, wow, what I do, how, especially how I eat has all of these implications on my future health. Right. And yeah, sure. Like young kids aren't, aren't necessarily thinking about osteoporosis, but the way that we are treating it right now leaves it such that a lot of young women are at risk 
for low bone density and, and early onset osteoporosis. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We only talk about it once it's become a problem. And then you get all of this information of, oh, yes, because <laughs> all of that bone mass that you should have been laying down, that's that's what would help you right now. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, if I knew that information earlier on, maybe I would have made different choices, right? Like maybe I could have made choices that would help me set a solid, healthy foundation going forward so that I could be, you know, I could have like a lifelong athletic or active career, right? Again, like whatever that means for for whoever, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be professional or, or what have you, but just so that you're able to be healthy and active over the long term. And it's interesting because we started talking about anatomy and I think it's really important to stress that having sort of done the hormone bit that actually we shouldn't just be simplifying things down to hormones because that kind of creates it creates a binary in itself and just thinking that okay well if we can track mm-hmm. our periods and there's no other things that that affect women and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i really love it that in the book you dedicate a whole chapter to to breasts so let's go that next and, <laughs> and talk about boobs <laughs> yeah i mean i think boobs i think are another one of these things where we just like kind of write off because they are associated with, again, breastfeeding and reproduction and sex, right? And so when you think about athletics and sports, you're like, what do boobs have to do with it? They just like, they just bounce up and down, right? Like what difference does it make? It's distracting. Um, whereas when you actually think about it for anyone who does have breasts, like it makes a really big difference to how you're able to be physically active or not, right? Even your willingness to be physically active, whether it's from embarrassment or breast pain or discomfort or, you know, what have you, it can, it can affect how you show up in that space or don't show up in that space. And from a a biomechanical perspective too, like breast movement can also influence like your running gait um, and affect it can make you run less efficiently, basically, right? Um, and so those are big things that we really haven't paid attention to until the last 20 years or so. Um, again, because like you have a field of biomechanics in which is it's predominantly men who, you know, I spoke to this woman, Lejean Lawson, who was one of the earliest folks who was studying breast movement and sports bras and all of that. And she had, you know, these men writing to her and saying, what, you know, just go to it. What do you, why do you need to do this? Like complicated stuff? Just go to a track and watch a woman. It just goes, your boobs just bounce up and down. That's it. What more do you have to study? Right. But if you are trying to design a garment that is supposed to support you um, and minimize movement and minimize that discomfort, if you don't actually understand the mechanics of that movement, you can't design that garment or you're going to design a garment that doesn't necessarily do its job like as well as it could. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me, you know, that we, again, just discount these parts of women's of female physiology and anatomy, just because we think that, that it's like superfluous in a way. And do you think we are moving away from that? Is it shrink it and pink it that used to be the kind of thing that 
that uh, sports companies did for, for for the women's lines of things. Do you think we're getting past that a bit now? I think so. I hope so. <laughs> right. So this idea that a lot of the activewear and outdoor re- retailers would take basically a men's um, men's garment or shoe or you know gear or whatever and then grade it down uh, to a, a smaller size so it would fit women, maybe add some you know, details to make it a little bit more feminine, change the color of it to make it a little bit more feminine um, and, and be done with it without actually paying attention uh, to what women actually need or want from the article of clothing or the gear in and of itself. So my hope is, is that like, as we're realizing these things and as we're realizing that there are some aspects in which there are real sex differences um, that matter. So things like temperature regulation, say, um, or anatomical, you know, features that they are taking into account that you can't just take kind of a one size fits all thing and grade it down and make it fit for both populations or make it work for everyone. Right. Um, you got to start with, you know, in those cases with like a woman's fit or a women's perspective on it. And then also for women of different ages too, because, you know, with temperature regulation is different in women, but that's also going to be very different for example, kind of pre and post menopausal women as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other areas that um, I think has been overlooked in the past and now there is beginning to be more research and discussion around and that we we touched on is is female athlete nutrition as well and I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more we've we've done um some bits on bone health but also the kind of wider implications in terms of nutritional choices and how they should really differ for men and maybe just touch on what would be kind of the starting point for people who are interested in this and in terms of having longevity in their athletic endeavors. Yeah. I mean, I think the simplest way to think about it is just eat enough, make sure that you're eating enough um, and eating frequently throughout the day, because essentially the reason why this nutrition conversation has become a lot more important um, is that your body is very smart, right? Like it's it, when it senses a downturn in nutrition or it senses that it's not getting enough food, you know, it thinks it's going to, it's starving, right? Or it thinks it's um, in this kind of critical state. And so it fits priorities to survive. It starts to shut down non-essential physiological systems, right? So it'll shut down things like growth and it'll shut down things like your reproductive system. And for women, when you shut down that reproductive system, you're tamping down those hormones that are associated with the menstrual cycle. And as we talked about, those hormones related to the menstrual cycle, especially estrogen, are really important for things like bone health, for cardiovascular health, for literally every system in your body, right? And so that's when you start to see all the, it's almost like a cascade of like problems that start to happen just because you're not eating enough. And so it turns out also that women tend to be compared to men more sensitive to these downturns in nutrition. Um, So while men can seemingly get away with like a longer period of not eating, um, women don't have that same buffer, right? Like our bodies respond pretty quickly. Um, 
the other piece of it is that, um, women are also much more sensitive to carbohydrate intake. So we need carbohydrates. And so it pains me that carbohydrates are still kind of painted as this villain or something that people shouldn't eat or should eat in moderation. Um, whereas like our bodies need that, our brains need that again, to keep these systems going, you know, like clockwork, right? Because this is, that is what it is. Like these hormonal systems, the menstrual cycle, it is like clock. It's like an internal clock. It's an internal rhythm that kind of keeps beating, right? That keeps going. Um, and so when you, when you take away that nutrition, that starts to get erratic and that's, you know, that's when all the problems start to happen. I think for women in particular, it's really hard, right? Because we have been given so many different messages about what we should eat, what we can eat, what our bodies should look like, what um, successful athletic bodies look like. And so there is this real tendency and this urge often to restrict, right? To restrict what we eat or to only eat like what seems quote unquote appropriate or what our magazine, you know, these magazines tell us is like appropriate so that we're not gaining weight and all of this stuff. But in doing so, it's like you're trying to run your body on like like a half tank of gas or an empty tank of gas a lot of times. And so I think we don't we don't often appreciate that enough, right? That the fact is is like you just got to eat. You got to make sure you're like keeping that gas tank tapped off, topped off because that's when your body feels safe. And when your body feels safe, it can then res- actually respond to the training that you're doing and actually incorporate the adapt to the training that you're doing and allow you to perform better. Um, there's a story that of these rower, you know, the national rowing team in New Zealand, uh, the women's side, um, after the 2016 Olympics in Rio, you know, the, the organization found that like, I think everyone except for maybe one of their athletes was in uh, danger in this danger zone, right. Of relative energy deficiency in sport, this, this danger of underfueling their bodies. Um, and so the, the whole, the, the organization kind of did this big shift and this like, you know, really just focusing on nutrition and making sure their athletes were eating enough. And I spoke to some of these rowers and especially like the lightweight rowers who are so used to like cutting weight as part of what they do, right? Restricting as part of what they do. And so this idea of trying to eat more was really hard to get on board. But once they started doing that, what they realized was that like, oh my gosh, I'm not totally zonked at the end of my workout. And because I'm not zonked at the end of my workout, I can actually do the next work, do the workout well, and I can do the next one well. And, you know, lo and behold, also, they're not putting on a ton of weight like they feared, right? I think that there's this fear is like, if I eat, if I just eat what I want to eat or, you know, eat more, I'm going to, I'm going to blow up, right? But the idea is like, well, no, because you're working harder and like your body is adapting to this and you're not putting on weight. And so in the, uh, the Tokyo Olympics in 2021, the New Ze- the women rowing team from New Zealand was like one of the most successful teams. They, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was like, they, they won like four of the seven races on the women's side or they gold or silver or something like that. It was like, it was kind of like this tremendous, um, outcome that they had. And it, I think it just goes to show that, you know, it's, that yes, our bodies need to eat more, but it's also like 
thinking about the environments in which we're in and the culture on which we're in that supports athletes and people to be able to do that, right? That encourages it and that makes it okay. And not this thing like, oh, you can't eat that. You shouldn't be eating that. Like you need to be skinny. You need to be lean and, you know, in order to be fast and whatever. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of work to do around that. But I think the, the thing that I would say for folks is like, just eat, make sure you're eating frequently throughout <laughs> the day. It's good advice. And I think we're always kind of fed that very simplified equation as well, aren't we? Of kind of calories in versus calories yeah. out. And actually we forget that that metaphor of like the fire, that if you don't feed the fire, the fire isn't going to burn. So actually the more that you feed it, the brighter it's going to burn and the more energy that you have, like the metabolism just seems to be not in that equation at all of that in and out <laughs> narrative. Yeah, really. absolutely. And I mean, a lot of that is also wrapped up in body image, isn't it? Mm. And and the messaging that we that we're sent by the media, by Instagram, by again, like what an athlete should look like. And do you think there's still kind of a way to go? What do you think that that both brands and also event organizers could do in terms of sending out messages of more but body positivity, really. Um, I don't really like using that phrase. I'll have to sort of come up with something different, but it's more about kind of like you you are who you are and that's great. And it's about being strong versus skinny and, and being able to do the things that you want to do. Um, so do you think that there's more that could be done in terms of making that messaging more mainstream, really? Because I know that there are some sort of niche corners of the internet where this is being done in a good way, but it's very much not across the board by any means as a. Sure. I think that especially for women athletes, like, well, athletes in general, right. It, it makes sense, or I can understand why there is this preoccupation with body, right. Because your body is what you use in sport. Um, but for women athletes in particular, it seems like our bodies are fair game for any sort of commentary in a way that uh, does not happen with with men, right? Um, so I think a big piece of it is the media and and then commentators too in races and at games and stuff, and um, just watching what they say, right? It's like there's there's so many kind of like flippant comments about, you know, a woman's body as, as she's racing or something like that, about, um, that are really harmful. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head and I can't come up with a good example, but like, you know, I remember what was it like the, the last winter Olympics with Jesse Diggins, who is, um, you know, a Nordic skier. And there was an article in the New York times that was just calling attention, like comparing her body to the other Nordic skiers and how it was like bigger, like her, um, her thighs and all this stuff was like bigger than like the, the lightweight, you know, other Nordic skiers and blah, 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 blah. And it was just, it was like, the commentary was almost super, it, it didn't add anything to the conversation or it didn't add anything to the commentary about the race or the achievement that Jesse had accomplished. And the fact that like Jesse had also has, is also a very outspoken advocate or, you know, uh, has been really outspoken about her own struggles with an eating disorder. And she had been in recovery before. Um, 
And the fact that, the, you know, they are still commenting on her body in this way that was really harmful. So I feel like there's a lot of that, right? You're commenting, you're commenting on bodies in a way that is more just about aesthetics and what the aesthetics of what you think a successful athlete in that sport should look like. And so when a body doesn't fit that narrative, um, you comment on it and you call it out. But in doing so, that in a way is almost like gatekeeping who can participate in the sport because you're saying this body, this body doesn't fit in this sport. It's this type of body that should fit in this sport instead. So I think that that's a big part of it is really like media needs to be better, right? Um, commentators need to be better about this and understand the repercussions of it. Um, I think, and then, I mean, social media is a whole other beast in and of itself that is terrible. But I think that that's, you know, those are, the, those are big things. And I think like for the race organizations or the event organizers too, when they know, notice that a commentator is doing that, like you talk, you, you got to call it out, right? You have to be, you, you as an organization need to do better by that as well. Um, and I think, sure, we can also talk about things like representation in the media and the marketing materials and who you are highlighting and showcasing in that. Um, I'm, I, that's important because obviously it's important to see diverse bodies and people in, in that type of messaging. But I feel like a lot of organizations often just use that as a shortcut in a way, right? It's like, well, I'll just add, you know, I'll just add some diverse people to my marketing materials, but I, you know, I'm not actually really addressing the problem here. Yeah. It's just paying lip service to it and then yeah. calling that inclusion, which is by yeah. no means doing the work really, is that? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so we've spoken a lot about sort of like the the discrepancies and and the not such good stuff, but we've also made reference to the research that is there and the progress that is being made quite often by by female teams as well. Um, could you just signpost and just make people aware of what programs are out there and the research that is coming out and kind of what they're doing in terms of leveling the research gap? Yeah, there are so many great people in this field. And I think that that's one thing that makes me so excited is um, they're just they're fantastic, fantastically smart <laughs> people who are doing a lot of really good work. And, you know, at least from what I've seen too, being really collaborative about it, right? So understanding that there is this gap and that we have a lot of catch up to do, um, figuring out ways to work together, right? Globally. So you have folks from Boston who are working fo with folks in California and Australia and the UK, um, you know, and they're all in Canada and they're all working on these same issues, um, but like different pieces of it so that they can bring a bigger picture to light. So some of the like really great programs out there are um, in Boston, there's the female athlete program. So it's run by Kate Ackerman, um, who is just like a dynamo and like has has just really spearheaded a lot of really incredible initiatives, one of them being the Female Athlete Conference, which is a conference that happens every two years in Boston that brings together essentially the who's who of folks in this field um, and kind of talking about what's new, uh, what are some of the challenges that are going on, and really, again, just a great place to kind of network and and get to know folks. 
Um, out in California at Stanford, there's the FASTER program, which F-A-S-T-R, uh, which is the Female Athlete Science and Translational Research, I think is what it stands for. But they do a really good job um, in terms of translating a lot of that research to the lay public and, you know, really trying to to um, help communicate, well, what can you do with this information? Um, there's folks in the UK, so Kirsty Elliott Sale um, does a ton of work around female endocrinology and female uh, sports performance. I believe she's at McMaster University now, but she's, again, just like one of the smartest people I've, I've spoken with um, who's doing a lot of work. And right now, I think also doing a lot of work around like menopause and perimenopause uh, um, in active women. And along those same lines down at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, you have Abby Smith-Ryan and Sam Moore, um, who are also doing a ton of work around menopause, um, really looking at almost like, I don't want to say like prescriptions per se, but just really trying to understand well, what, you know, knowing that research is a long ways off. What can we do right now to help women? Like, what can we understand about what women need right now um, to help mitigate a lot of these symptoms that people face in menopause? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. In Australia, there's like Claire Minahan and Louise Burke are amazing people. Um, yeah, I could go on. I mean, it's amazing to hear that there is that just breadth and and depth of stuff going on out there and in terms of translating that research obviously signpost to your book which is an amazing resource um where else should people go to for factual digestible advice for women who are on this journey so one of my like we're all on unfortunately or fortunately on social media, right? And that seems to be where a lot of people get a lot of information. Um, but one of my favorite <clears throat> people to follow on Instagram is Alyssa Olenek. Um, her handle is at Doc Liss Fitness, I believe, D-O-C-L-Y-S-S Fitness. Um, She's amazing. She's a postdoc right now and also working in, you know, she has her PhD in exercise metabolism, I believe, um, and doing a postdoc right now and looking more specifically at menopause as well. Um, but she's an amazing science communicator. Um, so she, you know, has, whether it's reels or videos or, you know, carousel of slides, does an incredible job kind of communicating a lot of these scientific concepts as without um, smoothing over a lot of the nuance, which I think is what's missing in a lot of these conversations, right? Like we miss a lot of the nuance of it. Um, so she's she's fantastic. Um, so I would definitely, I would follow her. What hope do you have for the future of women in sports science? I have a lot of hope. I mean, I think that, you know, like I said, there are so many people who are interested in this field. There's so many people out there who are doing good work. And I think that we're finally at a point where it is getting the attention that it deserves. So I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that we can only go up from here, right? And kind of hand in hand with the interest in women's sports in, in, in general, women's professional sports in particular, um, that this will continue to grow because if we want women's sports as a whole to grow, we need this infrastructure underneath it to grow and support it, right? 
Otherwise you're kind of on this like wobbly foundation. If you don't have, um, this, this research, you don't have this knowledge, you don't have, um, the support structures there to help the athletes do what, you know, to perform their best and to be healthy and not get injured. And where is your own work taking you next? Um, that's a good question. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I mean, obviously this is an area that I'm, I care about deeply. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm kind of exploring different avenues, um, with this, I'm obviously like continuing to look at this intersection of women's women athletes and sports science and what that means and some of the research that's coming out, um, you know, hoping to maybe find an idea for, you know, another, another book in there somewhere. Um, but for me, I think one of the biggest things that I've realized is really important is what we were talking about with just science communication in general, right? Like how do we communicate these concepts um, to a general public? How do we, there's so much good and interesting research that's going on in different educational institutions and universities. Um, How do we kind of break down that wall between universities and the general public? Um, Yeah, that's, that's the piece that I care about, care about a lot because I think, especially within wellness and fitness in general, there's so much potential for misinformation and pseudoscience um, that it is really important to figure out like, well, how do we communicate this well? And how do we make sure that we are communicating accurate information? Yeah, that's why why I asked you about a kind of sources of, of, of factual information that is actually relevant to to the science that's coming out that people can access, because I think you're right, there is like with the research gap that there's a real gap in terms of that that information being out there um as we've both experienced in our in our uh, different navigations of sort of like the health systems and things and 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 that's something that really needs to be needs to be filled I think yeah Um, and just before I get on to my final question because I know that we've we've run over a little bit um can we just signpost to where people can follow you Sure. So um, I'm on Instagram at CYU888. Um, also on threads at that same handle. And then I have a Substack newsletter um, that is christinemu.substack.com. Um, it's still a work in progress a bit, but it's a combination of, you know, some essays, some, you know, some kind of exploration of of issues related to women's sports, um, and research and sports science. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a work in progress, but it's a, it's a fun way to can kind of continue the conversation that started with the book. Oh yes. And my book, and up, your to book. Speed. <laughs> up to speed, the groundbreaking science of women athletes. Um, yeah, came out a couple of months ago. Thank you so much, Christine. You are you are a marvel, and you've been so generous with all of your wisdom and information. And I hope that this can be a really good starting point for people who who are finding themselves a bit lost with the the lack of information out there. So so thank you so much. And my final question, which I ask all my guests, is: What does joy mean to you? Yeah, so I've been kind of noodling on that in the back of my head while we were having this conversation. And I think for me, joy is, it is about 
connection with people. And I know like we're recording this like right around the holiday season. And I know that that's a, a little bit of a crazy, crazy time for most people. Um, and it can be a fraught time for most people, but for me, what it's, it's really reminded me of is that like the connections that I have, like that you have with people, with friends and like actually just taking the moments and the times to, um, really spend with the people that you care about. And, um, whether that's like having a coffee or a tea or, you know, sending a text or, or what have you, but like, but that's really, <laughs> that's really what makes the world go round, right? Like it, it is these connections that we share with folks and this, this shared humanity that we have with, with each other, um, that I think is really important that, and sometimes gets lost in things. So, yeah, for me, it, it is, it's joyful when I'm able to connect with folks. And yeah, so even this conversation has been very joyful. I'm so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.